Today's scripture reading is from Colossians 2, 16-23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is God's Word. Amen. Well, I'm excited to, uh, to preach on this text. We're going verse by verse through Colossians, and we have booklets back there um, on that back wall if you don't have one. And it just kind of goes through, uh, I think, 16 weeks of, of study. We'll stop for Christmas, but we'll keep going verse by verse, and um, it's just a joy. This is a great passage today. Um, We've been talking a lot about maturity, and uh, I know that when you talk about maturity, we talk about growing up in Christ, and um, a lot of us can react to that kind of poorly or um, being either confused or even uh, upset about what we're hearing. And the truth is, no one really wants to um, be called spiritually immature, and no one wants to think they're spiritually immature. And I'm pretty convinced that few, if any of us, uh, actually would ever have the humility to admit that we're immature. And so typically, our first reaction when challenged is to respond pretty poorly. Uh, And I include myself in this. It's not as if uh, I'm the mature speaking to the mature. I'm the immature speaking to the immature. So uh, some of us, though... Um, When we hear that, challenges or charges, whether from Scripture, whether from friends, whether from um, a pastor, whatever, we hear about maturity, uh, some of us run. And we run in order to kind of distance ourselves from the accusation, all while we're running, tallying up in our mind why that accusation was wrong. Uh, Some of us um, hide. And uh, we hear a challenge, a charge to grow up, to, to be mature in Christ or walking that path. And uh, we, we hide because we are ashamed. We get depressed. We point fingers. Uh, we make ourselves out to be the victim. And we wallow in despair. And I don't say that to mock. I'd say this is the reality of what happens. Um, and we uh, kind of sit because we're, we're, we're despairing that we're not able to grow up. And... The last kind of bad response is to fight. And some of us, um, when charged to be spiritually mature, uh, to lead spiritually, to grow spiritually, we accept the challenge the wrong way. Uh, we fight, and what I mean by that, we, we fight to start proving to others that we're mature by doing spiritual things. 
And all three of those responses, quite frankly, are just wrong and, and, and hopeless um, and misguided. The truth is, and I will say it before and I've said it, I'll say it again, we're all immature. And we all, until the day we die, will have work to do. And I actually believe that a lot of us, and I obviously speak a lot to men because I spend more time with the men's ministry than I do the women's ministry, which is probably a good thing. But the reality is, like, when you tell a man, you know, to, to lead spiritually, I actually believe that most men want to do that. They actually want to lead. And I think some just don't know how or where to start, and it can be despairing and, and a lot of other things. But it seems like pastors in particular, because we seem to be the ones talking about the Bible the most, get in trouble when you start um, saying particular words. People's ears start to itch. They start to get irritated when you talk about work. Now, theologically, if we take a kind of sidestep, we understand, I understand, our church understands that the Bible teaches the only thing we contribute to our salvation is our sin. Yea, us. Okay? That's it. God does everything. God takes what is a dead man, what is a blind man, makes him alive, causes him to see. God does everything. So, the hard part is, or the struggle comes when we read Paul in Colossians and Galatians and, and the Timothy letters to Timothy, really in most of his letters, using active verbs like fight and practice and train yourself for godliness like an athlete. And you're like, wait, 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 wait. I thought God did everything. How am I supposed to participate in this? What kind of work are we talking about? And so, Jesus, uh, it's interesting enough, Jesus kind of ran into something similar. And uh, I think we can make a comparison. After he fed the 5,000, which is one of his miracles, um, in John chapter 6, he kind of uh, disappears. And they go chasing after him, trying to find him. And they do. And in verse 25, it says this, When they found him on the other side of the sea... They said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, you're looking for me because you want more bread. You don't want me, you want my bread. Verse 27 says, Do not labor for food. Do not work to find food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Now, a few verses prior to this, he's already told them, I am the bread of life. So there's a lot of I am statements in the, in the book of John, and this is one of them, and he has said prior to this conversation, I am the bread of life, and now he's saying, come to the Son of Man who will give you bread of eternal life. For on him, Jesus, God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, well, what must we do? So much doing. What must we do to be doing the works of God. He's amazing. What are we going to do to, to be spiritual and do these things? And Jesus answered them in a way that he always does. This is the work of God. Wait for it. Okay. What is it? That you believe in whom he has sent. Now, I'm pretty sure the work of God is kind of the highest thing we could aspire to. And he says, it's belief in Christ. Faith 
in Christ. In other words, life and then growth, like eating bread, all maturity comes from feasting on Jesus. I love the the image of feasting. And it's interesting, all of sin, I'm pretty certain, can be explained by a choice to feast on something other than Christ. And I like to ask myself questions like, when was the last time that, that I feasted on Christ? I mean, feasted, it's more like nibbled, you know, it's, less, it's more than that, more than just kind of looked at, like feasted, immersed myself in Christ. Now, on this road that I'm going to lay out here, I changed the title, called it The Mystery of Two Ditches. On this road of maturity that I'm trying to, to hopefully encourage all of us to walk. A road that ends in our death. Okay, So it's a run, a race. It's, it's a path to walk. It's not something to achieve in, in this life. But it is a path to walk and to grow in. On this road of we'll call it Christ-centered maturity. The road of self-denial. I call it that because Jesus said, deny yourself and follow me more than once. This road of, of denying the self. There are... Or it is the road where you believe the deep conviction that the person and work of Jesus Christ is the motivation, the means, i.e. the power, and the model for maturity. That's the road we're talking about. Now, on either side of this road, there are two ditches that we often fall in. I like to talk about ditches. I do it with lots of things. Stole it from Doug Wilson, which I thought was a great image to use. And both of these ditches on this road path of maturity are immature. One ditch is the ditch of self-indulgence. And the ditch of self-indulgence is it's full of just sin. Okay, Do whatever I want. I can do anything because Christ has done everything. It's called cheap grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about that. Okay, Doesn't matter what I do. I'm forgiven. Grace, grace, grace. It's what Peter spoke against when he says, don't use your freedom for a license to sin. So we fall in that ditch. We also fall in the other ditch, which is the ditch of self-righteousness, where we try to do everything because we actually don't believe deeply that Christ accomplished anything substantial. And if it's not obvious, you could read 1 John and you'll find out real quickly that the one ditch of self-indulgence and sin it up is not what we are to do. Christians do not pursue sin. Christians do not continue practice of sin. That's what Jesus saved us from, lawlessness. But he also saved us from the other ditch, the one that I think we are more apt to fall into, self-righteousness or law. And I think this is a ditch that's a lot harder to avoid, especially when you're called to grow up spiritually, because Self-righteousness or the making of rules or practices or doing certain things feels good. It feels good to get a gold star on the chart. It feels good to see, like, I can measure my maturity. And so we fall into that because we actually believe that that's what's occurring. Now, it feels spiritual to focus all of our energies on external things. Specifically, things we fight doing, and then things we think spiritual people do. Right? We like concentrate on those. 
And this is not a new struggle. Self-righteousness is not new. It's very old. And the Colossians are struggling, I think, with the same things as they hear these heretics tell them they need to grow up. And my guess is that Paul knows that the Colossians are going to be tempted to believe what they're saying, namely that maturity comes from working, but working in the wrong way. And so he writes this section right here, I believe, to make sure they know exactly what he's not talking about in terms of work. What's happening in this young church is that a group of, we'll call them the spiritually elite, are showing up and they're really just pretenders and false teachers telling these young Colossians that their faith is not complete, that they have some spiritual deficiency, and that they have a a need, if you will, that needs to be filled up apart from Christ. And they're being assaulted in two ways. They're being condemned or judged for all the unspiritual things they're doing, and they're also being rejected for the spiritual things they're not doing. Now, both of these things, when you talk about, I'm not going to do those things because they're not spiritual, and I'm going to do those things because those are spiritual, they do have the appearance of maturity. But what Paul is going to tell us here is that they are sinfully, sinfully immature. Here's where he begins. By encouraging, in verse 16, not to let anyone, particularly those ones speaking against them, to judge them for how they're living. In essence, the false teachers are are condemning them for things that they should not be doing. And he says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in the questions of food and drink, or the regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are the shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. I don't know whose water this is, and I hope you don't have gone a sip of Herbalites, because I am drinking from it. Ah. I really hope someone has that. Okay, here we go. I'm thirsty, though. All right. So here, okay, in this first part, Paul is emphasizing what are the Jewish elements of this heresy. Now, I don't know how much we know about Judaism. You should know something because Jesus was Jewish, the disciples are Jewish, and the whole foundation of Christianity is Jewish. Um, I have the blessing and joy of having a whole side of my family be Jewish. And so I had my mom raise me at, at Passovers, which I pray we can have a Passover here at the church in April. We'll see. It might be March. I don't really know what the date is this year. But um, the reality is I got to, she pointed to stuff to show where Christ was. It was beautiful. But there's Jewish elements in this heresies, and the Colossians are being judged specifically for the refusal to practice some of the Jewish diets and observe the Jewish days. Now, the Jews had, and you can read it in Leviticus 11, I believe is one place, but all through the book of Leviticus and in Exodus as well, they had specific dietary laws that distinguished unclean foods from clean foods. Now, they also had a calendar that God started in the Exodus prior to leaving Egypt and said, today is your first day, and he started a new calendar for them. And in this calendar, there were various yearly, monthly, and weekly observances. That's why you see um, the festivals and the new moons and the Sabbath. He's like, you have your yearly ones, you have your monthly ones, and you have your weekly observances. And the diets and the days were not like 
suggestions. They were not optional. They were law. And so if they didn't follow these things, they were rejected as God's people. It was sinful. And so they took their spiritual identity by observing all these things and participating in all the things God had deemed them to participate in. And while some of these things did have some earthly benefits to them, I mean, there's a goodness about having a Sabbath rest, and, and some of the dietary things were, were certainly good for you, um, they ultimately and essentially served to emphasize God's holiness and to make an important spiritual dichotomy between what was pure and what was impure. Now, these diets and these days, like I said, there's books written about how healthy and wonderful they are. They're not intrinsically sacred. They're sacred because God has said, this is sacred. Okay, that's why it was sacred. And so to obey was to obey God. Now, these guys are being judged and told they're sinning because of what they're doing when they should be doing something else. Specifically, most likely, they're ignoring the days, they're ignoring the dietary rules, and they're having men's breakfasts, feasting on bacon, right? Drinking wine, going to the camel races on festival days, or working on the Sabbath, okay? So they're doing things, they're watching, going, whoa, you guys are sinning. You're doing things that are forbidden. Now, the Colossians... And these heretics come and tell these guys, you need to stop doing this if you want to grow up because you, know, you can't be doing things that are forbidden, that are pagan. Now, in truth, all of the details of the law, all the requirements of the law, all the dietary laws and days pointed to Christ. Everything. I would have loved to be on the road to Emmaus when... Uh, the resurrected Christ shows up and is walking with, with two disciples who are despondent and sad because of what happened to Christ. And he's walking, he basically gives them a huge history lesson on how everything from Moses to the prophets pointed to him. That would have been awesome. It was all pointed to Christ. And Paul tells us in the book of Galatians, because he's dealing with the same problem, people trying to add stuff to Christ, he tells us that the law was a guardian. I think some translations say caretaker. Some say schoolmaster, tutor to lead us and to guide us until Christ came. So the light of God is shining, if you will, through all this stuff, and it's casting the shadow that's Jesus-shaped. And if you follow the shadow back, you would see that it led to Christ, who is the full revelation, as Hebrews 1 said, of everything that was supposed to be substantial. And though God's good law, it was a good law, right? still shows us how bad sin has made us. It still reveals that. Our faith in Christ saves us from the condemnation of the law. And that's because every minute detail of the law was fulfilled completely by the sinless, substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So he fulfilled it all. That is why in the same letter in Galatians 5.1, great tattoo verse, it is for freedom that Christ set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, i.e. a new law. But sadly, and I'm not even surprised at this, because I'm guilty of it, 
Many Christians are very scared to live that way. The Bible says that in Christ all things are lawful, and not all things are helpful, but all things are lawful. And because of how all of us have seen how various things, food, drink, language, sexuality, because we've seen how these things have been perverted and abused, or because we even have, we've perverted or abused them ourselves, we actually begin to believe that, whoa, 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 once you say all things are lawful, you're going to start to believe that all things are helpful. And we begin to fear freedom and fear grace because of what might happen. Now stick with me because you're going to want to cut off halfway through my words I hear and I think go, "Mm, no. But only the immature, okay? Only the immature, the spiritually deficient truly, try to make new laws and believe and proclaim that everyone must follow them to prove or to advance or to achieve spiritual maturity. The flesh loves legalism, new laws, loves it. But I'm telling you, both law, having your rules, and lawlessness, having none at all, come from the exact same place, which is self-glory. Either self-indulgence or self-righteousness. And it's easier, legalism is an easy way to live. I lived very well that way for a long time. Because having specific rules is just an easy way to check the box and make you feel good about yourself. It allows you to really organize your life by not living at all. Now, what's spiritual for the person that creates a new law or is a legalist, it becomes more of a system than a lifestyle. You create your system, and the danger is with you have your lists or you have your rules or whatever you have, When an individual encounters a question or issue or a problem that's not on their list, they're in trouble. They don't know what to do. I had this experience at a a previous church where I tried to, I said, we're not equipping our people with discernment. We're making lists for them, so much so they're dependent upon the pastor to tell them what's right, wrong, good, and bad, to give their list and to modify when necessary. And when they encounter a question in culture, it might be something as crazy as tattoos, but it might be something less so. They don't know what to do because we never created a rule for it. Now, let me give you a very simple example of my own kids. It's like the only examples I have because I learned the most about God through them these days. My son, I have two sons. I was going actually uh, with Ross down to a soccer game. He probably remembers this. And my two sons are in the back seat of a truck. We're just kind of, you know, laughing or whatever. And my son says, hey, Dad, this is kind of man time, right? Yeah, this is man time. It's like, okay, so when mom's not around, can I swear? <laughs> now, that makes it sound like Pastor Dad is walking around like, rah, rah, beep, you know, like all the time, like he knows what that is. I, I don't know, but I wasn't even sure what he, like, what he meant by swear words. So I'm like, well, I just kind of laughing. I kind of look at Ross. He's like, you know, don't look at me. I'm like, all right, well, like what? What words would you want to use, son? 
Oh, I, 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 don't. I said, no, it's okay. You just let it fly. What, what, do you, what words do you want to use? He's like, well, you know, like, beep, you know, it says it. Well, I don't know where he picked that one up, but okay. I said, I'm, I'm struggling, going, because I want so much. This is how I grew up. Here's the list of words you don't say. I didn't want to do that. Now, he's 10 or 9 at the time, I think. And so I said, well, some of you just go, oh, my God. I said, you know what? That's a good word. In fact, sometimes that is the word to be used in particular moments that can't be used elsewhere. It's a great word. In fact, son, I don't want you to grow up believing that there's a list of words that are just out of bounds all the time. I said, but I'm not convinced that you're mature enough to know when to use those words and when not to. And so until that time, Let's not use any of the words that you might consider swear words or bad words. And he's like, okay. He's like, but how will I know when I'm mature enough, right? <laughs> he's a thinker. But I said, I'll let you know. <laughs> Law, right? But I grew up, and I, quite frankly, I was a jerk in high school, but I didn't use profanity. And I could break an individual down and make them feel like nothing without using a single profane word. And the problem was I had my list that I could say, oh, I'm spiritual, but I wasn't dealing with a heart issue of like, what am I actually trying to accomplish with language? And once you make your list, you've lost. And so you, add, you keep adding more to the list. I don't need to even use your list, and I can still sin. Now, we want so much for people to be equipped, and it's to be equipped with a desire where you're motivated by a desire to honor Jesus in all that you do, not motivated by a head wanting to make other people or yourself feel good. And what happens when you set up a new law is you cannot avoid swinging back and forth on a pendulum between pride and despair. Okay? Pride is... I had my law set up. When I was growing up, it was don't drink and don't have sex until you're married. As long as I did those things, I could do whatever. And I did do whatever. Okay? But I didn't break the two rules. So I'd go through a day, man, didn't drink today, didn't have sex today. I am holy. Okay? So you, you become prideful and don't even recognize that you're sinning in doing that. You're apart from Christ. You're boasting yourself. I met my new law. All right. Woo, feel good. The other pendulum swing is when you don't meet that law you set up. And you start despairing. And you start, oh my gosh, I'm such a terrible person. Man, I can't... You forget in both of those the cross. One prevents you from boasting yourself, and the other prevents you from despairing. Because God in Christ has done it all. Legalism and law always fails. And the reason it's so easy and tempting is because freedom is a much harder way to live. Staying on the path is much harder to live because having to discern every moment, having to avoid asking questions like what's right and wrong all the time, and instead ask, what is most glorifying to God here and now? That requires a lot more study of God's Word, a lot more prayer, a lot more meditation, a lot more counsel, 
where I really have to discern and wrestle and actually have a relationship. That's harder way to live. Now, don't get me wrong and go, well, there's no rules. Do whatever you want. There are some very good, righteous, wonderful fences that people should put up. Sometimes they need to put them up for a season, and sometimes they need to put them up for a lifetime. I do think we need to protect ourselves, and we need to protect our children, and sometimes we go, look, I'm going to do this, or I'm not going to do this, and that's good. But we must never cross over. We must never start to attach spiritual maturity to those fences or start judging people who have them or don't. That's the problem. No one's, it is, for many people who struggle with addiction, it is more God-glorifying for you never, ever, ever to abstain and participate again. That is the most glorifying thing you can do. But that's not necessarily the most glorifying thing for everybody. And that's where the problem comes. If you turn to Romans 14, I love this passage, and I throw it down all the time when people have disagreements about some simple things like what movie should we watch? Oh, you watched that movie? Oh, I don't watch rated R movies. Really? Well, you just got knocked out the passion of Christ, so good luck. But the other is some more extreme things, like how do we parent? Um, whether or not someone should abstain or participate in alcohol. Whatever. There's a lot more things that we can get from Scripture, but I'm going to stick with Romans 14 because I love it because sometimes I'll say, I think that's a Romans 14 issue. Romans 14 says this, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in the honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Great passage. Great. It's so big, I can't really put a tattoo of that. Maybe on my back, but, you know. <laughs> it's a great passage. And I'm not saying that, well, we can't, you know, the things that the, the scriptures clearly forbid, sexual immorality, things of that, and it, well, I just feel like that's right. No, you're wrong. It's not a license to do whatever to snarf you want to do. But it is to be very careful attaching spiritual maturity to things that the Bible does not forbid. Now, so we kind of resolve ourselves, say, okay, so if the work that we're talking about of growing in Christ doesn't come from not doing a bunch of unspiritual things, then perhaps we just need to focus doing work on doing a bunch of spiritual things. Paul says, no, wrong there too. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, 
from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So not only are they being condemned and judged, but they are being disqualified or rejected because they're not spiritual enough in how they act. Not only are they being judged for doing basically what the pagans do, they are telling them that they're not doing what real Christians do, what spiritual Christians do. From what Paul writes, it, it appears in the specifics here that he's disqualifying, or the Colossian heretics are disqualifying them on the basis of not having experienced God um, through asceticism or mysticism. Now, in Colossae, it's coming in the form of uh, probably extreme uh, abstention practices, like it could be anything, we really don't know. It could be you shouldn't get married, you shouldn't ever have sex, you shouldn't drink, you should have vows of poverty, those kind of things. Um, and then they have this angelic worship piece, which is kind of, a lot of scholars disagree what that is. It could have been a cult, what they're actually worshiping. Some argue that uh, the Colossian heretics were arguing that they were so humble that they wouldn't pray directly to God. They pray through the angels and things of that nature. Um, or, or and, they're having these uh, special elaborate visions that they can't stop talking about. Now, we see some of this influence in, in some of the, the branches of uh, the church and Christianity today. Uh, some of it in very fundamentalist, I mean extremely conservative like vows of poverty, extreme fasting, things like that that you, know, you must do. And then you have also the charismatic movements with the visions and the emotional experiences um, that all are to measure one's spirituality and to prove that they're spiritual um, or not. And what's created is kind of this spiritual elite class. Uh, I don't know if you've ever ran into that, but it's, it's kind of it's subtle, but it's pretty common. Uh, and the spiritual elite are those people who, who talk and act as if there's kind of this Christian inner circle where you want to be a part of or should, that, but only the immature are allowed in. And they have, honestly, their own language, like words and vernacular. They have their own um, stories, their own behaviors, and there's some consistency and patterns in them. Uh, I interact a lot with a lot of people, and, and I remember talking to one guy who came up to me and, and uh, was asking me some really poignant questions. Um, and he said... Um, he said things like, uh, well, I'm going down to this particular church, and he wasn't a part of the church, and he'd be going there for a year, but the spiritual or the Holy Spirit wasn't there. I said, wow, well, why have you been going there for a year then if the Holy Spirit's not there? He's like, well, I'm waiting for a divine encounter. I go, a what? A divine encounter? And he looks at his friend like, I'm an idiot, right? I said, I don't know what he means. He's like, you're a pastor? And you don't know what a divine encounter is? I'm like, no, I don't know what divine encounter. You encountered the divine? I mean, I don't know what it is. But he had an idea, a concept, and, and that, like, this is it. And he looked down on me, like, that I didn't have this understanding, and that he did. And it was weird, but I could see what was going on. And it was this inner circle that, that has been created, and, and it shows up in different places. And for the Colossians and for us, there's a temptation to want to be a part of it. I mean, ever since elementary school, no one wants to be left out. 
Everyone wants to be a part of it. And how often do you act different, even lie to yourself and to others, so just so you can be a part of it? You want to feel you know, a sense of identity. And so we'll pretend, we'll understand, we'll even claim to have experienced certain spiritual things so people don't find us out. I went to a highly charismatic school, and I kid you not, there were people I know were faking all kinds of things because I knew them. And I was like, come on! That's ridiculous. Now, more than wanting to feel a part of it, I think, some of the allure is actually wanting to look down on others for not having arrived, not having gotten mature as us, because it honestly makes us feel good to put other people down. But proving you're spiritual, you're, you are spiritual by doing or saying certain things is just as immature as trying to prove you're spiritual by not doing certain things. And Paul condemns these guys who are disqualifying whomever as claims that are coming from prideful people, devoid of reason, driven by a mind that simply wants to feel good about themselves and especially in comparison to others. And so Paul says that the heart of the problem for these guys and the thing that he's been trying to tell the Colossians that they have, that they're in Christ, circumcised in Him, reconciled through Him, all these things, is that these false teachers have lost their connection with the person and work of Christ. The Colossians aren't the one in danger of being disqualified. The heretics are. And all of their spirituality is pretense. It is loud. It may even be popular. It may put on an amazing show. But it's also that everyone else can stand in awe of their spirituality. Look at me. Spirituality is the very thing that Jesus warned against. I think Matthew 6 has many amazing things to say, but in verse 16, he talks about fasting, which would be something that someone might go, hey, you should do this to prove whatever. He says, when you do fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. But if rarely... That's the other verse. And I I don't want you guys to, to get to a place where you think I'm condemning all things charismatic or spiritual. The reality is, many of those things, I think, on an individual basis, are great ways for you to connect with God. But don't cross over the realm of saying that all people need to experience this. All must do this to advance to some level of spiritual maturity. You've lost your connection with Christ. And it's amazing. I went to a school, again, full of this. It's amazing how, how enamored um, those people trying to do spiritual things get with the things and stop getting connected with Christ. It's as if they're Christians, but there's no Christ there. They rarely talk about Jesus. They talk an incredible amount about the Holy Spirit, spirit leading, spirit visions, and all these things. And you're like, okay, where is Jesus in all this? Now, the fact is that these guys are without Christ, 
which means they're not growing. They are without doubt dying because they're not connected with the true church. And the danger, I think, of this, this vision piece or this asceticism piece is that individual experiences and special visions, they not only isolate people, as Paul says, from the glories of Christ, they actually isolate them from the people of God. The church is actually here to protect against such isolation and individuality, to test those things. Uh, and when you begin to, like, you know, I'm always suspicious when someone says, the Holy Spirit told me this. Well, how do I argue with that? Well, we open to test that at all. Ultimately, if you don't believe them, you're disqualified and just not spiritually mature as them. I would disagree. We'll close it out in verse 20. Verse 20 to 23. In conclusion, Paul is leading us away from what is ultimately the powerlessness of man-centered spirituality and toward the power of the cross. And it reminds the Colossians who at one time were alive to the world and dead to Christ, they now, through the power of the gospel, tables have been turned. The world is dead, and Christ has made them alive. Now, that means that any sinful efforts, I call them sinful, which means man-centered efforts to, I'm going to not do spiritual things, or I'm going to do spiritual things, both sinful, any of those efforts to grow are as good as a walking zombie. You ever seen The Walking Dead? It's a great show on TV now. It's kind of weird if you're into zombies, but zombies are pretty um, hopeless, joyless, meaningless, purposeless people. Okay, You don't look at that person and go, man, I want a life like that, looking for the next body to eat. Okay, That is ultimately what he's saying. Why would you ever want to go back? Man, I wish I could be a zombie again. That would be so great. That's what he's talking about. He's like, you are so alive. You've got Christ, His dwelling in you. You have amazing power and access and joy and meaning and purpose. You want to go be a zombie again? Dumb. Meaningless. Purposeless. And he says, if with Christ, like, okay, if this has happened to you, if you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations. Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed, he admits it, the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So Paul asks, why would you even consider submitting to these earthly regulations in the name of spiritual maturity to fill you up? Not to say that some of those things aren't wise sometimes, but to connect that with advancing and growing is fruitless and meaningless, especially in light of the supremacy of Jesus Christ and the sufficiency of the cross to deal with sin. He says, look, religion, those kind of spiritual rules, if you will, cannot solve the problem that's in your heart. It can't change. The the real problem is sin in your heart. How do I know that? Because my heart can take those things that are good and make them sinful. I can become sinful about reading the Bible. That's crazy. 
But that's the evilness of sin. Our problem is not external. Otherwise, external things like asceticism and severity of the body and and avoiding things forbidden might be kind of good. Our problem is internal. And so creating new laws and abstaining from God's good gifts or following certain traditions don't make us more right or more acceptable to God. Our acceptance now and forever will always come from faith in the work of Christ. Always. And so, the work of maturity is not to pursue righteousness. Okay? It's not to try and create or achieve righteousness by doing or not doing certain things. It is the work to believe. It is the work to understand. It is the work to know the righteousness that you have in Christ. I've said it once. I'll say it again. We're always fighting and working from our righteousness, not for it. That's why Paul's like, what What are you doing? Why would you foolishly try to achieve something that's already been done and you couldn't achieve it even if you tried? Christ has. Jesus is, without doubt, the motivation and the means and the model for maturity. And so our work is to see that and take that more deeply. And that transforms everything. Now, let me just clarify. The gospel is not and never has been developing a righteousness apart from God so that God can go, well, I'm so glad you're such a good person. Now that I owe you for being so good, I accept you and give you eternal life. That's never been the gospel. The gospel has always been that he develops a righteousness through Christ and then gives it to us freely. The gospel is not that, well, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you've been good. It's that it doesn't matter if you've been good as long as you believe in Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the gospel. Now, the gospel is not that we go from, well, I was an irreligious pagan, and now I'm going to be a religious sinner. I mean, that, that, we don't do that. We don't go from irreligion to religion. We see that both those things... Self-indulgence and self-righteousness are essentially the same thing and both wrong. Disbelief in the gospel of grace, of forgiveness, of freely reconciled through Christ is what keeps people from God, the unconverted particularly from God. But I'll tell you right now, a deep belief, a lack of a deep belief in the gospel is the main cause of spiritual deadness, of fear, of pride, of broken marriages, of I'm a cruddy husband, a cruddy wife, a cruddy employee, that is the reason in Christians. So contrary to popular belief, we are not reborn by believing the gospel and then mature by trying hard to do biblical things. Believing the gospel is not only the one way to meet God, it is also the one way to grow in Him. And my goal, my mission is the same as Paul, to take the things of Jesus deeper into our hearts. 
Some of these things that Paul is arguing against will look spiritual. Some of you participate and have participated in some of those things. And I'm not trying to denounce all those things as intrinsically evil, because they're not. There are many charismatic things that people participate in, and I think they are good and right. It's when you attach spirituality for everyone that's the problem. So some of these things are going to have uh, spiritual appearances to them, but just know that they'll never change your heart, and they can often become very sinful in themselves. Laws and rules may be helpful, but they cannot save. And mysticism or some of those emotional, experiential, charismatic tendencies, they may be emotionally satisfying, and that's not bad, but they often lead to idolatry. And abstinence and other forms of just extreme self-discipline may be healthy. They may even be wise at times for you or for others, but they must never, ever, ever, ever be connected with holiness of the heart. Any hope for external reformation, which is what we see in our actions, any hope for that, any hope for a joyful life that looks like Christ, is when your maturing work, the focus of your time and energy and efforts, is in knowing and believing and resting in the internal transformation that has already occurred in Christ, that He's already accomplished in you. Our best work would be best accomplished by taking First Colossians chapter 1, 15 to 20, and reading that over and over and over again of who Christ is and what He's done for us. So as we take communion, communion is not a mark of maturity, I guess in some sense, the only mark of maturity is that you recognize you're immature. And so we come to the table and we basically declare that we are still broken, though redeemed. We still struggle with our sinful flesh, though we are saved. And we declare that I want to walk this path, but I can never, ever accomplish that myself. And so it's the declaration as you lift the bread, this is the body of Christ, This is the blood of Christ, broken for me, shed for me, to mature me in Him. A lifelong process. Amen?